This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Welcome everyone. My name is Connie Dolan and I'm one of the faculty for the University of Maryland PhD program. And this is another of our PhD podcasts. I'm joined by Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the director of the palliative care program at the University of Maryland. And we are thrilled today to have Dr. Arif Kamal, uh, who is from Duke University. He has many roles. Um, You will see Dr. Kamal's name in a lot of the articles that you're reading and also thinking about, and you might have him as a faculty member as well. But we are inviting him here to think about the future in our What Comes Next, The Future of Palliative Care series. So just to give you a little flavor of his background, he is um, still practicing um, as a physician um, in medical oncology and the section of palliative care. He is board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. Um, He has really focused a lot of his work both in clinical care and in business because he also has his MBA. Um, He's been really thoughtful about thinking about quality measures and was helping with one of the registries. Of course, they've all come together and he can talk about that. Um, He's really been a consultant for many groups in terms of the Agency for Healthcare Research um, and Quality, the Cambia Health Foundation, the CMS Centers for Innovation. Um, And I think for you to understand that he's been a leader in um, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Um, He's also a board member of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, um, and also looking at um, measures, Um, has also been a Cambia Sojourns leader uh, scholar, which is also how I know him. So he has many more things that he can talk about, but just to give you a sense of the breadth and the focus of quality um, for you as students to know how important you know, we can do the care, but then what do we need to do with that? So we're going to kind of go from there. Um, So Arif, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit more? I gave a broad perspective, but are there other things that you think the students should know that kind of help form your thoughts for today? Well, I think um, just, you know, my passion for palliative care comes from a very personal space. Um, sort of my family's intersection with hospice and palliative care was early on in my training. And so I think for like a lot of professionals in our world, you have something very personal that drives you here and I'm not any different than that. And for those of you who are doing the PhD program, I congratulate you for taking that next step in your career to really establish yourself as a national leader and expert in some component of how to make this delivery better. We need everyone on board committed to doing this because there's you know, several challenges, which we'll talk about uh, that need bright people like yourselves to be a part of. So we do also ask the question of the people of the future. What's one fun fact that most people don't know about you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's funny. I, when I talk to people, they presume I'm a super serious uh, guy. And, and I think I am in some contexts, but Man, I love horsing around with my kids. I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. I love playing golf and tennis. I love watching sports of all kind. The last uh, trip I took uh, prior to the pandemic was to Miami for the Super Bowl because I'm a big Kansas City Chiefs fan. So um, we love to travel as a family. We love to eat good meals. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm a pretty laid-back person. I think most people who meet me over time and get to know me uh, even though they oftentimes see me in a suit and other things recognize that actually I'm a, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, tickle fights are a common thing in my house and I love to be a part of them. I don't love receiving them because my wife will tell you my feet are very ticklish, but also another thing most people don't know about me. But anyway, so yeah, we have a lot of fun. Well, it's good because I think we also like to know that um, people are human and they have all different sides to them. Um, so you talked a little bit about how you got into palliative care. You are doing a lot of things right now. So you're in the middle of it. What do you love? Kind of what drives your passion in terms of what your work is right now? Yeah, so, you know, we are so fortunate in this field to have such great leaders, 
kick this thing off, uh, you know, over a period of 30, 40 years, right? And now, you know, I did fellowship in 2009, which to me was not that long ago, but was in sort of the first crop of physician fellows, um, you know, coming out, taking the board exam and so on and so forth. And so the, the excitement really is around saying, gosh, as a formal recognized, at least physician field, it's only been about 10 years or so, right? 10, 12 years. And that means there's a ton of potential to, to me, palliative care in the US is very much still an unwritten story. Uh, we're probably in chapter two, to be completely honest, of sort of where this book is going. And I think a lot about palliative care 1.0 is really the hospice movement. Palliative care 2.0 to me was you know, sort of the birth of true upstream multidisciplinary care, you know, the fellowships and certifications across all um, team members and really the growth of hospital-based palliative care and to a certain extent, community-based palliative care. But now I love to think about what does palliative care 3.0 look like, right? Like what is the natural evolution of what we're doing in many different ways? So how do we get to the right patients at the right time in a just-in-time way before they hit crisis, right? How do we prevent crisis? And how do we completely, um, utilize all members of the team in a way that is both recognizing their important contribution from a financial resource perspective as one place to start, but also actually utilizing all of our team members in the right way, because I still think palliative care remains to be quite physician-centric in its delivery. And the challenge with that is, is that, you know, um, physicians aren't good at everything. There are particular things we are okay at, and, and it varies. But gosh, um, we have to think about systems that actually embrace the idea that complex clinical situations need a lot of people involved. And that team means, you know, that team sort of team-based care means that we have to really think about what are everyone's sort of strengths and opportunities and how are we using those folks in the right sort of targeted, deliberate way. And so to me, palliative care is this largely unwritten story. It's sort of like in its second draft needs this 3.0 and a lot of people are now thinking about it. And I think the other part that's exciting is we're going from uh, really trying to advocate, can we have a seat at the table to sort of saying, I think we do have a seat at the table, but now to a certain extent, we have to figure out um, who are we in terms of what we're advocating for while at the table. Because the argument, you know, five years ago uh, was we need more consultations. We need more business. We need to be invited to more rooms. And now it's sort of saying, well, I think we've done that to a certain extent. Now it's sort of saying, well, which of the patients most need our help and how do we get everybody uh, sort of in some sort of triaging mechanism to figure that out? And importantly then of the patients where we can't directly face-to-face -face help them, how can we be change agents within health systems so that we can, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, right? Well, so the point is, is that there are particular boats that we may go after and try to lift but every patient with a serious illness needs some philosophy of care that we can bring. And I think our role as educators and change agents, as QI experts, as researchers, as clinicians, as colleagues and others can really make this an entire healthcare movement. Because I think fundamentally that's what we're trying to change is certainly one program at a time, but in, you know, one plus one is three. Like when you put the whole thing together, it's trying to change all of healthcare. And that to me is super exciting. And I hope your students find that to be super exciting to be a part of as well. So you didn't two things fail during all that. I think you can do it single-handedly. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's the thing. We need, we need the entire village for sure. I have two questions based on that. Um, so, you know, Arif, there's a really interesting thing because I think we think of ourselves as really novel and, and we did change that, you're right. But I also think it's been very interesting to me and as we move with a health equity lens and you try to move things and you say to people, okay, we have to change in order to do that. But then you even have palliative care teams who are saying, well, this is the way we've always done it and these are the roles that we've always had. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes find that incredibly stunning um, because I'm thinking, mm -hmm. Okay, we changed and we've had to evolve. So how do we help this change with this lens? And you kind of mentioned it has been very physician centric. And I think where the incentives are, that's the most threatening. And yet mm -hmm. we also know that to rise everything is to rise the whole boat. So you've kind mm -hmm. of thrown out some really complex things that 
um, every day when I'm talking to people, it's like, we want to change, but we're not going to change that, right? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's like a family, right? So I see palliative care as like a family and a family has to have both sort of an inner voice and, and an outer voice, right? The inner voice is um, the one that's truly honest with itself, right? So as a family, you might say, look, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, this particular uncle is, is struggling with some particular demons, blah, 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 blah. This kid's not getting the greatest grades, blah, blah. The point though is, I learned this from my family early on, when you go to a dinner party, you largely say everything is great, right? The thing though is, is knowing the difference between the two voices. And so I think palliative care is a field when sitting at a table with cardiologists and surgeons and others, yes, we are doing a fantastic job. And, and the reality is we are, right? The reality is I think we are, but it does not mean that you ignore the inner voice that says, hmm, so, you know, the National Consensus Project for Quality Palliative Care, which, by the way, is a must read for anybody in palliative care, and I hope your students read it. And I didn't it, you know, say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't, but if it's a must read, right? So, and, and Connie was part of that for sure, is that if we say, for example, that the definition of palliative care is the patient and the caregiver as the, the unit of care, then our, inner, our outer voice says that to everybody, that we, we take caregiver needs as being just as equally important and, 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 and we will pay attention to them. Our inner voice should say, so as a field, are we really, really in a standardized, regular way assessing caregiver needs? And if we've got that figured out, great. I'm gonna contend that I don't think we've got that figured out. And, but so what that means is that we have an honest conversation as a field and sort of say, gosh, we need leaders to really, you know, take this charge of implementing standardized caregiver assessments, for example, and figuring out where our skills are and where the needs are and the gaps are and so on. And that's a way to get better. And this is the principle of quality improvement, right? Without having to demonstrate that you're not good enough, right? Because they're, they're not, it's a false choice, right? You can be really good and still want to get better. And I think that's the ethos of what palliative care is anyways, right? So so many people came into this field, right, in the last 10 to 15 years because they saw something in healthcare that just didn't jive with their own sort of moral compass. And I think that's really true because you didn't come here for the money. Even if you did, I'd be interested to see who did that and where they found that money to exist. But so if you came here, it's because you said, you know, my moral compass is pointing this way and the way I see healthcare work is not jiving with that. And that's great. Now, what that means though, is keep looking at that compass because if that compass has a true north that really says, caregiver assessments, let's look at other areas that are you know, blue ocean areas for our field. So financial toxicity, really, really important to patients and caregivers. And yet as a field, I don't think we've really figured out how do we intersect ourselves in there? And the answer cannot be get a social worker and have them take care of it, right? We have to really understand. So when we think about total pain as an example, total distress, right? Finances are really important part of that. So I think about finances, I think about caregivers and Connie, you brought up you know, sort of diversity and inclusion, you know, if we, again, our inner voice asking ourselves, honestly, do I, I'll just start with me to start with, do I know how to do a palliative care assessment in uh, a Latinx patient versus a Hmong patient versus a Cambodian patient? Um, and can I fine tune my instrument to meet the needs of that population in a way where I can walk away and go, yep, I did that right. No, to me, clearly the answer is no. But we're all trying to learn. What that means though is from a discovery perspective is I think we can sit at tables and look across to pulmonologists and say, you need more of us in the ICU. Let's figure out how to make that done. But also sit at tables with our own colleagues and go, hey, so what are you doing? What are you guys doing so well at your institution that we can learn from about how you manage patients or assess cultural issues or religious issues and other things. And I think you're starting to see in our field um, stuff like the, the, the top 10 tips series in the Journal of Palliative Medicine that Chris Jones and I co-edit, that was really the impetus for that. And so just for, for um, your, your students, the idea was that we want to give people just in time access to information about taking care of patients in a really personalized kind of way by teaching them something that, that, that they may not know. And so in the top 10 series, we focused on uh, Muslim patients, on Jewish patients, on patients of Latinx background, of LGBTQ patients, et cetera. 
to sort of say you can both be really good at what you do and at the same time hold that we can be doing it better. And I think if any, if any field in medicine and in nursing and in social work and chaplaincy and pharmacy, et cetera, any field can understand that and hold both things simultaneously, which is we're pretty darn good and I think we can do better, it's us. And I think we shouldn't feel a shy to embrace both things at the same time. Well, I think also what you're getting at um, is, you know, that, and I can speak for this having come from hospice and, and stepped into palliative care um, when it was going, was is this whole thing that there is this continual learning, right? Um, and, 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 you know, you brought up the Cambodian patient. I mean, I just remember, you know, when I would get um, a referral and I, it was from a Cambodian family, I also had to stop and say, is this even culturally appropriate? In this culture, you do mm -hmm. not talk about death and dying. So what's mm -hmm. going on and what generation are they, right? Because first generation, absolutely inappropriate for palliative care to right. be involved. Second and third right. generation, I can talk to the children, but I still have to be very nuanced. And I think mm -hmm. this, the, the, the worry that I have of what you're bringing out with this quality, which I think is so important, is yes, we do a good job and we still can improve. And so I think sometimes even when people are picking quality indicators and they wanna pick the 100% and we're like, well, then don't do that, right? Like you're not learning from that, picking something mm -hmm. that you can. But I also think of this part about, um, how do we sort of know, even amongst our team, who's the strengths, not even by discipline, but strengths in different areas, right? So mm -hmm. like what I mean for that is, um, you know, for the team, um, because I helped start, like I actually had a really good relationship with a lot of people because I knew their styles. I'd spent so much time and it wasn't that, you know, if you'd quiz me, was I the best person on COPD or heart failure? No, but I had that palliative care skill of that relationship building, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think, you know, what you're, when you're talking about the quality part, there's the qualitative data and the quantitative data. And we still as mm -hmm. a team need to hold both of those. Um, and so sometimes I think what I worry about is we still have a lot of people who, who feel like, well, if I'm a good clinician and my heart is in it, it will all be fine. Yeah, that's a great point, Connie. And I, I um, look, you know, the time where we got points for just showing up has long since passed. And, you know, it's tempting to give ourselves credit and a pat on the back to say, look, I did 10 consults today. Aren't we great? And, you know, at a time where um, you weren't getting any consults when the baseline was zero, then 10 is fantastic. And so you are, at your point, getting at a quantitative outcome. And it's really tempting to kind of get stuck in the quantitative outcome, partially because healthcare oftentimes measures its success in a quantitative way um, by number of consults, number of visits, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're clearly interested in the quality component of that as well. And, you know, the thing about any newish specialty, I still think we're kind of, kind of newish, certainly in the way that a lot of clinicians are now consulting us is, um, I learned early on in my career that consistency builds trust. And for people who have children, you know this to be true because my eight-year-old watches how I discipline my four-year-old and vice versa. And what they're saying is, well, when he did blank, you didn't do blank, but when I did blank, I got blank, right? And what they're saying fundamentally, even as children, is because you're not consistent, I can't really trust the process of, in this case, you disciplining us, right? So I'm gonna kind of pick at the process because I don't inherently trust it. And I think that goes for a lot of different things. Consistency builds trust in a lot of different components of the world because people want to see consistency, at least from a trust perspective. So, you know, obviously when people talk about quality measurement, they say, well, look, palliative care is an art um, and some of these things are hard to measure and so on and so forth. And, you know, the mantra in quality improvement actually is first worry about doing it the same and then worry about doing it right. And I say that not because doing it right doesn't matter. But what happens is that people make the lack of clarity about how to do it right be the argument for not worrying about doing it the same. And so look, if an entire palliative care team said, we're all gonna, I'm gonna do the caregiver thing here for a second, assess caregivers using this instrument by, and all of us are gonna do it by the third visit 
during the hospital and we're gonna use this method to, you know, if we identify this and this need, we'll bring in financial counselors or case management or navigation or other sort of external, you know, extended aspects of the palliative care team, blah, blah. That is a huge step forward for our field to even hear that that were to happen. But what happens, and this happens in oncology all the time, and that's where I'll make my analogy to, is what people do is say, okay, well, we have breast cancer, and you know, let's figure out what are the three chemo regimens we're going to use for all patients with early stage breast cancer. And what will happen is people sit there and talk about arguing over the side effects and the cost of each particular regimen, and you go, can we just agree to all do three same things? We'll worry about later about the nuances of whether it was the right thing. And so what I see is practices sitting there going, well, should we use this instrument or this instrument to understand caregiver? It's like, just pick one and do it, right? And then once you've all done it the same, then later you can sit there and kind of poke at the edges about whether it's the right one or not. And so I think to a certain extent, consistency builds trust. Consistency in what we do is really important. And, and, and importantly, there's a pervasive undermining of what we do when all you need to know is that in a particular health system or hospital, that a particular clinician or group will place a consult if X, Y, and Z person is on is rounding that loop. And I hear that all the time. And what they're telling you is, I don't trust the service that I'm going to get because frankly, it's not consistent, right? And so you can all sort of imagine on a clinical service, well, when this person's on, they're really into you know, ketamine and methadone, and they're just all about the pain, but maybe not necessarily do some of the advanced care planning stuff as well, and vice versa, whatever those flavors look like. And I think where we are now in palliative care 3.0 is really trying to understand, right? When people think about quality measures, quality measures are just saying, it's just verbalizing out loud the things that you think are important, right? And so if you said, what are the 10 quality measures that we should all be using today? Well, uh, HPNA and HPM have put out uh, the Measuring What Matters project is a place to start. But even if you said, we disagree with that, we want to use our own, well, fine. Find the 10 things that you think are the most important thing that should happen every single time your team uh, intersects with a patient and their caregiver. And the point is, figure that out and then do it consistently and say, this is what we value. And we value it so much that we're going to hold ourselves accountable by measuring that and then doing some improvement around it. And I think too many teams are honestly uh, so so worried about perfection that it is actually becoming the enemy of the good. And so I think for us to be change agents, we have to be willing to change ourselves, right? Because everybody wants other people to change. It's hard to change themselves. And this is a really good example of that. And I think as change agents, we can be within a health system, we can be the role models of this to sort of say, hey, I think we're pretty good. But we also notice, for example, we think um, spiritual assessment is a really important component of palliative care delivery. What we recognize is less than 25% of our consults are we actually documenting a formalized spiritual assessment or screen. And so we're working on that. Hey, cardiologist, when you consult us, we guarantee you this is what you're going to get. You, we're going to check in on your heart failure patients' uh, spiritual background and whether that's driving some of their decisions about particular things. Again, when that consistency builds, then the trust builds. And when the trust builds, we go from not only having a seat at the table, but actually being asked our advice about how to do particular things. Well, I would go for two places. One, when you're talking about the seat at the table, then, then we get to create the menu, right? We're not on the menu, we get to create it. So you're right about that mm -hmm. power. But I think, you know, mm -hmm. if you bring up a really interesting point. So um, when I was started the team at the academic center that I co-founded it at, literally started with nothing. We started, I started with a telephone on the floor. We didn't have a desk and chair. Mm -hmm. So fast forward five years, I'm still the only NP and I'm working with seven or eight different physicians. Now I ask for a meeting because I'm, they're all practicing differently, right? Two weeks on, yep. two weeks on, two, and I'm saying, you guys, consistent messaging. Can we talk about an algorithm? Well, that was the wrong word to use. Sure. Sure. Because what I was told is exactly what you're saying, Connie, there's an art and a science and we all want to yep. practice the art. And I said, that's great, except for I'm trying to work with all of you and we haven't even agreed upon what as a team are the types of medications we're going to use. Mm -hmm. you, you all are practicing differently. And, and so to your point was, I also saw in the same way you're saying what different other people are on when you get the consults, I also noticed that when certain physicians were on, when we got the consults. Mm -hmm. 
right? So it was a both. Oh, yeah. and, and, and so it's very interesting to me because I feel like while we've had a movement and we are really looking at the patient and family and then the work that I'm doing of health equity, it's the patient and family and the community. Right. That's so much. We have really almost been allergic to algorithms because somehow we feel those are bad rather than saying sure. algorithms force us as a team to have a conversation about as a team, what do we agree are sort of our first and second line ways of treating different things. Not to say it's exact, but we're kind of coming in with some consistency. We have an allergy to that. Be, and so it makes it hard sometimes to have these conversations because I feel like people will say, oh, Connie, you just don't understand exactly what you're talking about, the chemo. My patient is different. We, we can't, and huh? okay. So it's been, yeah, and I watch like, and so when you talk about quality in those terms, it makes me excited because I'm like, God, I wish we could just use that language so people would, would understand the reason of it. We're not trying to make them mechanics and, you know, we're trying to still have them be real. Thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, look, we, you know, a component of palliative care practice, right, is we ask patients sort of what's important to them. And to me, quality measures are just a um, out loud communication of what's important to the team, right? And so you measure the things that are important to you. That, that's just frankly what it is. And so um, if your value is that we're all going to do it differently, and you're willing to say that out loud in a team meeting and say, there's really no reason for us to do it the same because, you know, this is an art. Well, you know, I think from a patient and caregiver and referring clinician's perspective is they don't necessarily want to play the game of let's just spin the wheel and see what comes up, right? That may feel great to you because it's, it's fun, I guess, but uh, I can promise you the referring clinician wants something that they can trust. And I think if you're able to express out loud what is important to us as a team that we make sure all patients get, and you might say, look, three components of it is a standardized component of it and the rest of it will be art. Well, at least that's a start. Again, let's first decide which parts we're gonna do the same and then we'll worry about whether it's the, the right parts or not, but let's first decide. And so if we say all patients should have assessment of pain and emotional assessment and spiritual assessment, well, gosh, that's still three steps ahead than where most people are right now because what we haven't done a great job of is really comparing and contrasting practice. So I'll give you a sense, you know, part of this is, uh, so my, my brother is an orthopedic hand surgeon and he and I were talking not about palliative care, but he was talking about taking his board exam. And it, you know, for surgeons, board exams are experiential. They actually pull your cases and you sit in front of a room with a bunch of people who read what you did and they ask you questions about it. And there's this back and forth dialogue. So it's almost like an M&M about the cases that you operate on. Why did you choose this? Why did you choose it? Blah, blah, blah. Wow. And my brother said, don't you guys do that? And I said, no, I don't even know how much people would shake. And he said, why? What do you, what do you, what do you guys, you know, what are you afraid of? Like, you know, if you're doing it right, maybe there's many ways to get there, but the point is you got there. And, you know, and so I think that culture of reflection, I mean, we are, very, you know, as a field, I think we're very reflective, particularly when we're helping other people reflect. I think there is a moment though where we sort of say as a field, I think we should be reflective amongst ourselves. And again, inner voice, outer voice. Outer voice is, look, we're doing a great job. Don't, you know, let's not change that. And then and when I think about this in the quality vernacular, this is, you know, there is quality improvement for accountability and external reporting. And there's quality improvement for sort of internal improvement, right? And you do have to separate the two things, right? Quality improvement for external accountability and reporting, you try to put your best foot forward. And actually demonstrating a lot of gap is not necessarily in your best interest, particularly based on what you're reporting for. But those honest moments is the internal stuff where you say, let's close the door and let's talk about this. So did you notice that when you're rounding, we get consulted, when you're rounding, this happened, da, da, da. And it's, instead of seeing that as a threat, I think that's really important to see that as an opportunity for growth because I think most people in palliative care do have a growth mindset. The other reason to do that is a more practical one though. It's that from the ecosystem of, of what we're talking about in serious illness is payers and health systems are, and this is hard to hear, agnostic as to who does the work. They just want it to get done. And so if we want palliative care to be a self-preserving group, then it becomes a trade society, right? What's a trade society? A trade society is, you know, we really think that 
styrofoam cups are better for the planet than plastic. So I represent styrofoam cups. And when I go lobby Congress, I talk about how it actually costs more money to recycle a plastic cup than styrofoam and blah, 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 blah. And actually not that many sea turtles are dying from styrofoam. The point is I'm representing my own interest when I talk to other people. Notice that the styrofoam cup lobby, for example, is interested in the proliferation of styrofoam cups. It has nothing to do with whether people actually get a cold or hot beverage, right? That's not necessarily what they're focused on. If you take that analogy, which I know is a little obtuse, but if you apply that to palliative care, we have to be very careful. Are we advocating for our particular version or brand of this delivery? Or are we interested in saying, look, all serious illness patients and their caregivers require really good high touch compassionate support that is importantly after their goals, preferences and values. And if so, if it's the latter, then it may include right versions of team composition and care delivery that may honestly feel a bit uncomfortable than where we have been before. So examples of that in our field, right, can be NP-based telehealth palliative care delivery. And so, you know, there may be certain team members who kind of gristle at that idea and say, how could that blah, blah, blah. The reality though is that's happening. That's neither good nor bad. I'm just saying that's happening. There's, there's lay navigator versions of that happening as well. So everybody who has a stake in this game, not just palliative care specialists, is trying to figure out how we provide the best care to those people, oftentimes who are largely homebound or have difficulty accessing services in person and trying to figure out that. And so palliative care has to decide, I think, with both its internal and external voices, Okay, we're back on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, but you know, Arif, what you made me think about um, is, so we've focused on like quality metrics for clinical, but I think, you know, I think it's really important for you to talk a little bit about the other types of metrics that a palliative care team may be responsible mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. These are PhD students and we need them to look beyond the clinical, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm just going to pivot to research for a second, too. So, you know, palliative care is in a unique space because a lot of the things that we do are not based on very large randomized controlled trials. And importantly, for those who do understand sort of how large randomized controlled trials are resources, they either come through the NIH or they come from industry or pharma. And generally speaking, we're not using a lot of cutting edge drugs that are still on patents in particular, where you're gonna find a lot of interest from pharma to do that. So we have to be creative in our evidence generation, right? And so you'd mentioned earlier, Connie, right? Registries and real world data is going to be really key to what we're doing. And I think as palliative care specialists, we have to, and as researchers, think creatively about where that data sits. So for example, do the payers have that data? And you know, do clinical research organizations have that data? Do quality collaborators like the PCQC, the Palliative Care Quality Collaborative, have that data? Do health systems have that data and networks and, and so on? Where does that data exist? Because what we're seeing, for example, in other fields is that in places where randomized control trials cannot get done, you essentially have this, um, essentially a randomized control trial within a data set. So you can follow populations of people, let's say who got, uh, you know, this drug versus this drug in a palliative care setting over a large registry and you can follow them over time and sort of see what happens in a real world kind of way because palliative care essentially is real world delivery, right? We're doing real world problem solving based on the resources we have and, and, and where we are um, located. And so I think that what that means also is that QI and implementation science are really important to our field as well. So let's, let's talk really quickly about about the difference. So research is uh, novel data generated that is generalizable to most settings. And so, you know, oftentimes in palliative care, we worry about generalizability because we're talking about, well, this is my institution's experience with seeing patients with head and neck cancer by palliative care and their average pain score is this and so on and so forth. And you ask yourself, well, would that be the same in a community hospital versus a tertiary care hospital, et cetera? But what we can learn from that is even if it's not generalizable, what we can learn from that is what are the lessons, what worked well, what didn't work well. And we as a field have to get better at sort of saying, we need to create a library of things that don't work well. And even though that's uncomfortable to publish or share with others, because you, you feel like it's a failure is we have as a field, because we're so particularly young and new, we need to create a library of the things that don't work. And we have to have brave people in our field raise their hand and say, yep, we tried that thing. 
it didn't work for us. And let's tell you why da, 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 so that other people also don't make the same things because to a certain, you know, to a certain extent, you're like salmon swimming upstream, right? You're kind of like figuring out, well, that's not the right route. That's not the right route, but, but we're swimming nonetheless. And so I think, you know, putting, putting new data sets together, figuring out what doesn't work, thinking about QI and also thinking about implementation science means that we can also help figure out in a particular organization or geographic location, if this, uh, uh, you know, subspecialist is in, you know, short supply or man, it's really hard to get a pharmacist to go to Billings, Montana, as an example, is how do you still get that function, that skill, which may be sort of med reconciliation and looking at interactions, how do you get that still uh, addressed in a way that's novel and unique? And I think in palliative care in particular, one of our great strengths is, is we are good communicators, we love to share and we love to network. And you sort of think about palliative care working in that kind of networking way where you say, gosh, there should be centers of excellence with hubs and spokes, right? Where we're really trying to help each other out and doing case review and doing other things and trying to understand like, you know, we cannot make palliative care 3.0 be about having, uh, pick on pharmacists for a second, a certified pharmacist on every palliative care team in the country. Like that in and of itself, you can get so stuck on that, that you actually sort of lose the forest for the trees. The forest is we want to make sure all patients have, you know, reduced risk from interactions and so on and so forth. We want these things titrated so in the right way. And maybe there's ways through distance-based ways and other ways that we can collaborate and work on that together. And to me, the reason why Palicare 3.0 will be successful is we'll be creative and thinking about how do we come together as a field to solve these problems in unique, creative ways. I think in the same spirit that got us to where we are. Because for those of you who founded the field, like Connie and Lynn and others, right, you know that 15 years ago, this seemed pretty daunting because we we're like, how are we going to get a hospital palliative care consult team into any large hospital? Well, we figured that out because we, we learned to message things in the right way to the right audiences. And I think we have to do that same, too, as we think about growing the workforce as well and really embracing the folks who I think are oftentimes are on the sidelines, sort of saying, well, I'm not fellowship trained. I'm not, I'm not. Like, look, you're an ally. We use the term ally, for example, in DEI. We need allies or champions to palliative care. We need to identify them, embrace them, bring them in, not focus on the differences. Like, well, you're not certified. You're not this, you're not that. No, no, no. If you have an interest and you want to be a part of our team, by all means, you're all welcome. Because this is, right, a revolution. This is a philosophy. This is not a tribalism issue. And I think the more we can get away from that, the better we'll be served as a field. Well, you also speak of the fact that we also need to be creative um, because have we created barriers within some of the certification recommendations, particularly for physicians, right, that you have to have sure. fellowship. And, and I understand it. And, you know, thinking and in nursing, we're thinking about that, too. So, um, right. so right. you, you know, have such a great, broad knowledge. Um, what do you think is, you, you've kind of mentioned some of the challenges that we've got to kind of come together and we've got to be more thoughtful and, and think beyond our, our um, institutions and think about the payers and thinking about policy. Um, but what do you, what keeps you up at night? What's your biggest worry? Um, the thing that actually keeps me up at night is the most precious resource we have in palliative care is the human capital. It's the people who do this hard work. And I worry about them a lot. Not just from a burnout perspective, because I think, you know, and, and others know in some work that we've done and Dale Lupu and others have done too, is that, you know, we can project in a lot of different ways how we won't have enough clinicians. And so we worry certainly about who's going to do this important work and how are we supporting them and recognizing their efforts? You know, I worry about, you know, what are we saying to the social worker in a medium-sized hospital that says, well, you can't bill, but you're important. Uh, so I guess we'll kind of keep you around until we run out of grant money and then we can't. You know, what are we saying to that person, right? What are we saying to the APP when we say, well, the physicians get to go to the annual assembly, but you got to stay here and hold down the fort. Like, what are we saying, right? What are we saying to the pharmacist where we say, well, if we get a grant, we'll put you on the team. Otherwise, can you just curbside constantly all the time and help us out, but we won't recognize that effort in some way? Like, what are we really saying to people? And so I think what we have to do is recognize that the most important resource here is not our um, clinical skills or credibility, because I think those go without question. It's really sort of saying, what happens to this field if, if people, particularly in the, in the era of COVID, 
just get burnt out and don't want to do this any longer or realize that they don't have the protective mechanisms. Um, you know, I was thinking a lot about this. Our, our family, we went um, to, uh, on vacation to New York. We went to Niagara Falls and you get, you know, if, if you go on the boat to, under the falls, you know, they give you a raincoat. And so you recognize if I'm getting on that boat, I'm going to get wet because I'm getting really close to a very large waterfall. But the point is you take the raincoat, not because it's not wet, not because you're not going to get a little wet, but you're doing everything you can to not be completely soaking when you come off that boat, right? And so I think for a lot of people in palliative care, what we're saying is we're getting on the boat and we're getting really close to this large waterfall of distress and we're going to do it every single day. And, and that's what we signed up to do. But the point is, we need to make sure everybody has a raincoat. We need to make sure the raincoat is intact. We need to make sure when it gets wet that we switch it out. And we need to think about better ways to have better raincoats well, as well, right? And so I think that's our challenge just as much as anything else. And I think in a lot of ways, what we just talked about in terms of having people practice at the top of their scope is gonna help with that. Having a really good sense of team dynamics, really trying to work in matrix functions as opposed to top down, and really again recognizing the value and contributions of all of our members of our team, whether their coach says MD or not, it doesn't matter to me. And those things can be really, you know, even done in small ways, but really important. And I think in some of the work we've done with focus groups, for example, of uh, non-physician colleagues, you know, what we've heard is similar things that I just mentioned. Right? Is that, gosh. Certain people get opportunities to do education and, and I don't. And so when you start to see disparities in opportunity, then what you start to say is we value our team members in a different way. And that becomes a very slippery slope to at that point then saying, well, if we value everybody in a different way, we pay them in a different way, we give them opportunities in a different way, well, then you're not going to have a team for that much longer, right? Because that underlying um, concern may turn into resentment, may turn into other things. And so I think a really important focus here, what keeps me up at night, is thinking, how do we make sure everybody feels like an important and valued member of this community? And how do we hit that from a payment perspective, right? This is why it's so important that from a payment perspective, we're really thinking about bundled payments or capitated payments. We're really saying like the entire team is getting paid for doing this important work. How do we think about um, other policies that sort of recognize all the work that people are doing and their contributions? And then how importantly do we get people um, to really find the joy and the love and the work that they do and that we're able to support that at systems at system ways, but also at individual ways too. And I, and I would love everyone's thoughts about how to do that because I don't think we've figured that out yet, but it's a really important question for us to get Well, about. I do think though, I mean, pre-COVID, you know, I, I, I feel a little bit heartened in the sense that, you know, the Institute of Health Improvement had started thinking about this with their joy of work and that, you know, they were mm -hmm. deliberate about naming mm -hmm. it joy because they didn't want to focus on the negative, you know, that the National Academy of Medicine had started looking at clinician burnout. Um, yep. I think, you know, in COVID, everybody has started looking at this more. And I think depending on what your discipline is, um, some of that. Um, and I, I will be very intrigued to kind of see what happens, you know, coming out of this. I think everybody knew it coming in, you know, to your point, what's going to happen when, I mean, because we're not done with this pandemic, you know, I know people are relaxing and doing whatever, but I don't think, you know, you know, in a few months, maybe we'll have a better sense of what's really going to happen, right, both internationally and nationally. And how well, does that- and Yeah. Right? Yeah. And imagine- our clinicians start doing consults in patients dying of COVID in an ICU who chose themselves or their family members to not get vaccinated. That level of moral distress, we will have to be present for. And we may have our own thoughts about, boy, that was a silly decision, right? Whatever that is. But the point is, we have to be available and there and help those folks. And I, I actually, you know, in this moment, worry a lot about that for ICU clinicians and palliative care clinicians, because we're going to walk into situations where we might have thought this is a completely avoidable and preventable thing. And yet here we are talking about suffering. And importantly, we may be dealing with uh, survivor's guilt or guilt of family members and caregivers who may have given that advice, for example, and are now saying, I can't believe I told her not to get vaccinated. Now here she is on ECMO, blah, blah. And so I agree with you, Connie. I don't think this actually gets easier, I think it actually gets harder before we get to some level of normalcy on the other side, because the thing is, we are still on the boat, and there is still a waterfall, and we're still like just floating around near that waterfall, right? We're not, and, and, and again, the waterfall's not going away, and hopefully we're not getting off the boat, right? So you just realize that that's the challenge that's there, 
and 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 it may be gun violence, right? It may be climate change. The point is, when there is crisis, palliative care is going to be called to be a part of that. That's never going to change. And I think we've you, you know really great leaders in our field, including yourself, have established that really hard over the last twenty years. But the point is, we say we may not know what the next crisis is. What we can do, though is be prepared to meet that as a field and, and do all the things that we can so that our most precious resource, which is our human capital, is emotionally and physically and logistically ready to meet that challenge. Like that to me is the, for, like as much attention as we wanna give to, well, which patients with advanced dementia should get palliative care? I mean, that's an important clinical question. My question though is, so who's gonna do that work? Regardless of whatever the threshold is for that consult, who's going to do that work? How are they going to work together? And what's going to keep them coming back from tom to tomorrow and the day after and the day after that? You know, can I go back to where you were saying that we need to value everybody on the team? It's easy to say because both of you can bill for your services. So here I am as a pharmacist right. and the C-suite can say, well, I mean, pharmacists are adorable, but they can't bill. So, I mean, yeah. I understand you're saying it's the team's responsibility to pick up that job function, but even if we as a team value everybody on the team, how do we sell that to the C-suite? Well, certainly more research, right, about, you know, and, and there is now, right, research on the return on investment for the involvement of pharmacists, right, on the palliative care team, one. Two, I think from a policy perspective, we say this has to be a, you know, per member per month payment that just says, look, and we're going to roll everybody's efforts into that in some way. So if you think about it, hospice, hospice is great. Hospice is great. So let's just start with it. Hospice is great. But at $170 a day, which is a conservative estimate, for 30 days, you're talking about $5,100 a month. Okay. The average Medicare patient in, in the country is eight to 12 grand a month. Hospice looks like a really expensive program. Now, that's not a critique on hospice. What it's saying is, Sometimes it costs that much money to do this kind of interdisciplinary work. And we've already recognized that in the hospice world. So I ask you, why couldn't we take some version of that and say, and, and do it in the palliative care space, right? And it, it may not be $5,100. Certainly that would be tough to sell to begin with. But the answer may not also be $300 a month or $200 a month or something like that, right? There's probably something in the middle where you say, we find a number that works, but we bring everybody on the team to do what they're really good at doing. And I think the answer is somewhere there. We just have to convince policymakers and others that that investment exists. And I think there's small battles that we're trying to win. So for example, in North Carolina, we have a 50 to $80 copay for Blue Cross Blue Shield patients to come see outpatient palliative care. And somewhere between 15 and 20% of our patients no-show to our clinic specifically because they don't want to pay that copay. Now, when I call the chief medical officer, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, you know what he says to me? Oh my gosh, Arif, do you want us to waive that? Because those patients will come. I said, they will come if you waive it. So there's moments like that for, for, for your students and our community and for us to say, that's a no-duh thing. But the reality is, is a lot of people and payers in other places don't understand that that barrier exists. And it's our responsibility to point that out. So again, Lynn, to your point, if we said, well, gosh, if you paid, you know, an extra hundred dollars a month and we could get a pharmacist to help manage the care of a hundred patients in a population health level way, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that could reduce that, 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 that bad outcome. You know, again, it's up to us to put that imperative and that calculus in front of decision makers. And we can't be shy about doing that because we might get a no for an answer. Look, all answers are just no in that moment. Doesn't mean that the next week or the next month or the next year, the answer is going to be no again. And I think that's what we keep doing. But us as change agents have to be advocates. So Lynn, to your point, we have to put that evidence in front of policymakers and say, look, if you pay $100 more a month, these are great things that can happen. And this absolutely needs to happen. And if you say no today, we'll come back tomorrow and the week after that and the week after that. Okay. So one last, I, I, it's been fascinating, Arif, because I think where I expected you to be more metrics, I mean, you're really talking about the metrics of human capital and we haven't yep. covered yep. that focus. Um, and on another discussion, I'll just put forward that, you know, it's been interesting because we talked to some of the people who helped create the Medicare benefit and they would say to you, they wish they hadn't. So that's a whole other different discussion. Um, but, you know, in terms of thinking about our students and they're going to be starting in the field, what would be some of the, you know, any last advice that you would give them? Because they're going to be leaders in one way or another. Of course they are. Um, well, first, congrats for doing the program. Second, for you know, thanks for being in the field. We need as many people as we can get. Third, my challenge is define what you think palliative care 3.0 should look like. And what I would say is it's a blank slate. I mean, we have a lot of great 
leadership and direction and so on and so forth. But, you know, the hospice Medicare benefit is not going to stay the same. So it's changing. The way we think about a lot of the delivery of serious illness care is changing either from the, uh, the government side or from the nonprofit side or from the private sector side. So I think now is a really awesome time to sit down and say, you know, I think palliative care 3.0 should definitely do and then fill in the blank. And tell me what that is. And if that's caregivers, if it's financial toxicity, if it's uh, access, if it's equal pay among or equal pay among um, you know, clinician members, if it's equal access among different disparate organ, uh, patient populations, et cetera. Yes, I think we should vision all of that and sort of say, yeah, that's what we need. And if it's technology, if it's predictive analytics, I mean, the answer probably is it's all of those things. But for each of your students, they, they're going to lead some aspect of, of any of that and many other things I didn't mention going into the future. And I would say, be creative, be open-minded, right? Because just like in QI, we say simple problems are okay with simple solutions. Taking care of 150 million patients, persons with serious illness and their caregivers in a really dysfunctional healthcare system is not a simple problem. And it's, it's going to take, right, not a simple solution. So we're going to need complex solutions to these complex problems. And that's going to require creativity. Creativity requires a deep knowledge and expertise. And that's what your students are jumping into, right? To say, I want to really understand this space. So I would say, take all your experiences from your life and other places that you've worked and think about how we can apply that here, right? Because that's what we need is really good intelligence from er other areas, right? So people who've done things in other areas, try to bring that over here and see what we can be doing differently, more creatively, because we'll, we'll, we'll need it. Like we'll need those smarts in terms of what we're trying to do. Well, that was an amazing thoughts for us and for our students. Um, I think you really helped them um, A, B, be creative because there isn't one path, but to be assured that there's enough room for everybody to make a difference. So thank you so much, Arif. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Well, um, I hope some of them take our uh, stats course, uh, Lynn, and otherwise I'm happy to be a resource as I know all the faculty are to ensuring the success of wherever um, your students want to take our field. And, and there's a lot of room for leaders and I'm super excited that they want to be a part of this, this group. It's going to be a great ride. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Kamal. Okay, take care. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care chat podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.